to the book of John, chapter 5. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 15. It's good for us to remember some of what we noticed last week in verses 17 and 18. We saw then that verse 17 has Jesus claiming that whatever reason justifies God's working on the Sabbath also justifies his. We heard him say there, my father is working until now. This they agreed with. They had settled on this, that God the Father continues working on the Sabbath. My father is working until now, and I am working. The claim that he has just made is that he is true son of God the Father, such that it's like a, and this is just a metaphor, and metaphors break down, but the, one of the pictures he is pointing us to in his cultural experience there is that this, this is just like a young man uh, learning from working within his father's occupation. Uh, that child who is participating in putting a horseshoe on your horse, that child would not normally be allowed to do that. You wouldn't just let him walk up and begin working on your horse, but this one this one's work is totally legitimate and justified because his father is there too, and his father is, and here's a new word I had to learn this week, his father is the farrier. His father is the horseshoer guy. That's what I was going to call it, but there's a word for that guy. And his father's shoeing your horse, and there is his son standing beside him, handing him the tools, cooperating and copying his father's work as he learns from his father, participating in the work his father was doing. And it's totally fine because his legitimacy is an extension of his father's legitimacy. Jesus says there, if God's work on the Sabbath is legitimate, then so is mine because he is my father and I am doing his work. And in verse 18, we saw last week, they totally understand this message. He was calling God his own father, and he was claiming equality with God. Now, when he said what he said and did what he did pertaining to the Sabbath and the healing of that man at the start of this chapter, it enraged them. It led them to persecute him. But when he made these claims, the text tells us this is what started them plotting his murder. And in our passage this morning, Jesus responds to their horror at this suggestion by going into even more detail. This is especially true of verses 19 and 20. They are absolute gold mines in terms of describing, Jesus describing the nature of his relationship with the Father. But we'll look this morning all the way down to the end of verse 24. So I'd like us to begin by reading Verse 15 to verse 24, although we'll start our study in verse 19. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 5, beginning in verse 15. The man, this was the man that he had healed, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What our Lord will say this morning is something that needs being mentally prepared for. If God has given us his word in its totality, and if he intends for us to study it in its totality, if he intends for us to be confronted with each teaching he brings us as we walk through his word, then he wants us to think about the Trinity this morning. This is our responsibility in light of what he is telling us here in these verses. I would suggest to you that this morning's text is probably one of the most explicitly Trinitarian passages in all of the New Testament. Not just in the stating of the reality of these relationships, but in the describing of them to us. What Jesus is doing could well be described and has been described as bringing to expression the truths described in John 1, 1 to 5. This is what Seth read to us just a moment ago. And the first verse of that, John 1, 1, is itself perhaps the single deepest verse in all of Scripture. And Jesus lays it out for us in concrete terms this morning. It is remarkable what we are uh, being faced with, what is being revealed to us in the text this morning. What we'll do then is we'll take this in essentially two big steps. The first thing that we'll do is we will simply walk through them from verse 19 to verse 24 and take notes, fact find, seek to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is saying about this relationship he has with the Father. And we'll gather six facts about the relationship between Father and Son as we do that. The second thing we'll do then, after we've done that, is we will try to hold up those six facts collectively and draw conclusions from them. And it's especially uh, there that we're going to be really forced to wrestle with the mystery of the Trinity. The Trinity is indeed a great and deep mystery. And yet in saying that, we're not saying that the Lord has revealed nothing of the Trinity, or the nature, even some of the details of the Trinity to us in his word. He has. And so we're going to wrestle with what he reveals to us here. But we'll have help from things like the fact that we are not the first generation of Christians to receive God's word. 
to think about these things from these passages. We're also helped because Brady made coffee this morning, and he made unusually strong coffee. So if you partook, you might be further equipped and helped this morning as well. So first, six facts about the nature of Jesus' relationship with the Father. We're going to see two of these facts from verse 19, two of them from verse 20, and then the last two from verses 21 to 24. It's the way that we'll take them. Look again at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In particular, there are two things that we see about their relationship in this verse. One of them is this. We see that the Son's connection to the Father can be described with the word necessary. His connection to the Father is a necessary one. It's what he's emphasizing himself when he says the Son can do nothing of his own accord. The emphasis is not on the, uh, on the doing of nothing. The emphasis is on the own accord element. This is not so much a statement of limited ability as it is a statement of necessary connection to another. So it, it may be that he's describing a limited ability if the one he is necessarily connected to has a limited ability. That would be the place, perhaps. But it all hangs on that. Again, the emphasis is on the idea of doing something of his own accord. He will repeat the same idea down in verse 30 of this chapter. Do you see it there? He'll say simply in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. So that's the first thing that we just notice as we're walking through these and taking notes. The first thing is that the son's work has a necessary connection to the father and his work. Secondly, from this verse, Jesus says that the son's work is coextensive with the father's work. This is an idea that gets completed in verse 20, but the part of it that we have in verse 19 is this. He's, he's telling us the son does Everything that he sees his father do. He does, quote, only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And by the way, even that on its own, can you hear the way that that, that loan statement inevitably claims divinity all by itself? That's a claim to divinity. The only one who could conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father. If he's able to do whatever the Father does, he must be equal in power with the Father. Now again, we're just fact-finding here. We're going to... Uh, we're going to be taking these things and putting them together in the second half of this morning. But what we're seeing at this point is that the son's work has a necessary connection to the father and that the son does everything that he sees his father doing. Notice how, here's the third fact as we go into verse 20. Notice how that second idea is completed in verse 20. Verse 19 tells us that he does everything he sees his father doing Verse 20 adds this, and the Father shows him, what? Everything that he does. 
Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the son does anything, whatever, that he sees his father doing, and the father shows him everything. You see the full picture there. As Jesus works, he is participating in the works of God. We've seen it manifest itself multiple times already in John's gospel. Psalm 104.15 says that it is God who gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. And in John 2, Jesus gives wine. God says in Deuteronomy 32 and many other places that it is he who heals. And in John 4 and 5, Jesus goes about healing. And not healing in the name of someone else, but healing on his own authority. That's what sparked this controversy, isn't it? The healing that happened at the beginning of this chapter. As Jesus does what he does, he is participating in the fullness of the divine work. Secondly, in verse 20, he keeps on this claim of doing what God has shown him to do, doing what God himself is doing, and he adds to it. Look at how verse 20 ends. He essentially ends by saying, and you have not seen anything yet. He says, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. As I have worked, doing only what I see my father doing and what I hear from him, there are things yet to come that are greater than these. These are the things they've already seen, the works that they've already seen put on display by Jesus, the healings, the incredible teaching, and the like. He says, greater works than these will the Father show me. This is a lot like what Jesus told Nathanael at the end of John chapter 1. After he had demonstrated supernatural knowledge, and Nathanael marveled, you remember Jesus told him, you will see greater things than these. Now, it, it brings up an important question. What makes some of these displays greater or lesser? What's the criteria? And I think it bears itself out as we hear Jesus name the greater things that they're going to see. That's what he does in verses 21 and 22. He names those greater things. Listen as he names them. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. We'll stop there for a moment. The the things he names here are greater in that, you could say, they are deeper. There are deeper things in the same vein as what you've already seen, and they're greater because they're, they're, they're even foundational to the things you've seen. God can, and we, we, I mentioned Deuteronomy 32 and many other places, God can bring healing or make sick. But deeper in that same line, God is the very giver of life itself, isn't it? Do you see how that's deeper in the same vein? And God can give wisdom, he can teach, he can reveal right from wrong, but they're going to see things that are even deeper than that. Because not only can he reveal wisdom and reveal right from wrong, deeper in that vein, God is the actual arbiter of right and wrong, isn't he? He himself, he is the judge of all. He is the judge of all mankind. And notice what Jesus is saying here. 
since the Father is going to show me everything he does, and since I do everything that the Father does, I am telling you that I am the giver of life, and I will give life to those to whom I desire to give it. Oh, and also, the Father has given all judgment to me. That too. We mentioned at the start of, I think last week, what incredible jumps come to us in John chapter 5 compared to the truths he has revealed to men thus far. Do you hear the claims he is making here? These are complete claims of divine prerogative. On that point of judgment, he's very emphatic in verse 22, isn't he? There's a double negative there in the way that he words it, and along with the word all for the judgment. He says, the Father does not judge no one, and instead gives all judgment to the Son. It's quite a statement. I mentioned that of the six truths that we're seeing, the last two come in verses 21 to 24, and this is the first of those last two. It's the truth that by virtue of this relationship, Jesus is the giver of life, and Jesus is the judge of all mankind. Now, those two statements are, I hope, are clear in our mind. They're not surprising at all, the notion that Jesus is the giver of life and that he's the judge of all mankind. What we need to understand this morning in what Jesus is conveying to us here through John is that those things are true by virtue of his relationship with the Father. They're the case by virtue of a relationship. The reason given here for the Son giving life is that he is doing what he sees his Father doing. And the reason that the Son has all judgment is that the Father has given it to him. Do you see how it's the relationship between them that grounds these truth statements about Jesus? And verse 23, the sixth and final detail that we read here, uh, or fact that we're given about this relationship, has to do with purpose. It's that the Father has done this because of his desire to bring glory to the Son. Look at verse 23 again, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Not instead of honoring the Father, but just as they honor the Father. We'll find by the end of John's Gospel that this desire on the Father's part toward the Son is reciprocal and mutual. The Father loves to glorify the Son and does glorify the Son. And in fact, the Son will ask him to do that. In John 17, will ask the Father to glorify him. But in John 17, 1, he'll ask for that glory, he says, so that the Son may glorify the Father. The desire for honor and glory to be put on display and worshipped is mutual between them. It's mutual love and honoring. Now, we have heard our Lord lay out descriptions here of the relationship between himself and the Father. We need to think about what we've just seen. And as I said at the beginning, this is really the coming to expression of what began this gospel. What did we see in John 1.1? 1, 1? John opened like this, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the word was with God, and the word was God. If you were here with us when we began the study, you may remember some of what we noticed there. Just remind you of a few, of a few things. We saw in masterfully put terms, we saw absolute unity and equality such that John can say, the word was God. Everything that God is, the word is. This amazing equality and unity. Yet, we also see in that verse a distinction. A distinction that the church has long characterized by using the word person. We see a distinction of persons here. And that's why it can be said in that verse that the word was with God. So one way we could interpret that is by saying, the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Father. There is a distinction of persons between them. And we have to remember, as we talk like that, that that portrayal that we give in, 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 in describing their distinctions in relational terms, Father and Son, we have to remember that that does not come from human imagination. We didn't make that up, describing their relationship in those terms. Those are the categories that the Bible gives to us. When Jesus prays, he addresses his prayer to Father. In John 1.14, the word is described as the only son from the Father. In John 17, when Jesus is praying to God and he's He's speaking of the glory that they shared before the world began. He's praying to his father as he makes those reflections. They are father-son. Yet they do the same works. They receive the same honor. They share the same divine glory. When God himself says in the Old Testament, I will not share my glory with another. They share that glory. They are of the same essence. Yet they're distinct from one another by virtue of their relations to one another. And by the way, I'll just say, maybe this is the right place to say it, all of this, of course, equally applies to the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? All of what we've said thus far applies in the same way to the third person of the Trinity. We're fixating here on the first and second persons of the Godhead because that's what our passage is doing. But rest assured, the second half of John's gospel is going to be quite concerned with the person of the Holy Spirit. He is virtually absent on the pages of the first half of John's gospel, and he is not at all that in the second half of John's gospel. So he will be coming into this picture, and we'll need to speak to that. But in our passage, an important thing to understand this morning is that as Jesus is doing what he's doing, as he's describing his relationship between himself and the Father, what he is saying informs both the eternal relationship between them that has always existed and the relationship that's on display as Jesus Christ of Nazareth walks the earth and ministers. Let me say that again because we're going to look at each of these of these statements. I'm saying that the relationship that Christ is describing here between himself and the Father, and in the ways he describes it, it, that informs us about the eternal relationship that he had with the Father before he took on flesh, and it describes the nature of his relationship in the incarnation as well. Let's look at each of those. The first thing we said is that 
His descriptions here inform us about the eternal relationships between Father and Son. The fact that they are eternally distinguished from one another by their relationship makes sense, for example, of what Jesus says further down in verse 26. Look at verse 26. He will say there, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That is quite a statement. And that is true of the eternal Son. As the Nicene Creed puts it, the Son is begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not created, or begotten, not made. Now just think about that statement. There's an inevitable direction to that statement, isn't there? The Father is never said, and the church has never spoken of the Father as being begotten of the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father eternally. Flipping that around makes nonsense of our language, doesn't it? The notion of the Father being begotten of the Son. It's those very relations that define the persons, one against the other. So we're hearing Jesus relate to us the true nature of the, here's a big word, intra-Trinitarian relations. We're hearing him relate to us the nature of those relations. Their works are inseparable And yet there's a relational distinction between them that is correctly described as father to son. But verse 20 makes it clear. Listen again to verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. That verse makes it clear that he is not only describing the eternal relation between father and son. He is also speaking to what's happening in the course of his own ministry, incarnate, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as he ministers there in Jerusalem. He's clearly speaking to that when he makes that comment. Because there are works in time, as Jesus is ministering, that his father has not yet shown him to do, that he will in the future. This is a clear statement of his earthly ministry. Now, if we can push on this a little bit, here's what I want to suggest to you. Because you can tell we're already getting into some very deep realities about our God. But I want to suggest this to you. This morning is a great opportunity. Do not miss or waste this opportunity. It is not often that the scriptures choose to speak to these things at this depth. And when they speak, we had better listen. Here, I think, is the opportunity in thinking about eternal relations versus Jesus' ministry and his relationship to the Father in the flesh. Because of what we have said about the nature of the Trinity, I'll make this statement, and then I'll explain it. So if, if it doesn't make sense at first, then just bear with me. Because of what we have said about the Trinity, it has to have been that way. It must be that Jesus' description describes God's work before the Incarnation and in and after the Incarnation. The reason for that is that any time that God acts, it is by necessity happening in this way. Let me share with you something that D.A. Carson writes uh, when he's speaking about this passage. I think he gets this very, very, he gets it right and he puts it very helpfully. Here's what Carson writes. He says, Jesus is not equal with God as another God 
or as a competing God. The functional subordination of the the Son to the Father, the utter dependence of the Son upon the Father, are about to be explained in these verses. The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs His Father's will, receives authority. We can grow a great deal in how we understand the Trinity by simply meditating on that. And what I wanted to do was to take, that, take the point that Carson is making there and that we need to understand from this passage and try to put it simply in two steps. I think if you follow this one statement through these two steps, you will have mined the gold that we are meant to gather from this passage. Will you have understood the Trinity? God forbid. It's an impossibility. But you know, because a thing cannot be comprehended in its fullness, does not mean that we are not responsible to know and wrestle with what he has revealed to us. So here are these two steps that I would suggest to you. Those distinctions, the ones that Carson just mentioned, you remember them? The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, and the Son responds, obeys, performs His Father's will. Those distinctions are describing the distinctions between the persons of Father and Son. When we speak of God working, and we've already mentioned it, and this is the point that Jesus made, right? He always does exactly what the Father does. He never uh, works apart from his Father. One way that we have described that in history has been to speak of the inseparable operations of the members of the Trinity. They do not work ever independent of one another, separate from one another. We're speaking there about their persons, aren't we? So those distinctions of role in activity, in work, are distinctions between the persons of the Father and the Son. And the key word there is persons. Now here's the second step. This is the last one. In the incarnation, we do not see the divine nature taking on flesh. A nature did not take on flesh when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. What we see is one of the divine persons taking on flesh. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God. He is the second person of God. And that person took on to himself, added to himself, a true human nature. What we're getting at here is the distinction between person and nature. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, did not become a different person when he came in the flesh. And Jesus Christ does not possess two persons. He is one person who possesses two natures. He has added to himself a human nature. So here's the point. I've heard it put this way, and this is very helpful to me. A nature does not act. A person acts. So whenever, wherever the second person of the Godhead is acting, is working, this is what we're going to find. Because this is the nature of of any distinction that exists between himself and the Father. Now, here is where I, as we're moving, and we're moving toward closing this morning, where I would have us notice the work that Jesus is emphasizing in this passage. 
And this will lead us well into what we're going to see next week. Do you notice here, especially in the last few verses, that Jesus is emphasizing that the Father has directed him to two works in particular that he's emphasizing. The Father has directed him to give life and to bring judgment. Verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says the Son gives life. Verse 22 says all judgment has been given to the Son. Life, judgment. It's going to come again down in verses 26 and 27. 26, he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment. It'll happen another time in verse 30 and verse 39. Verse 30 will say, as I hear, I judge. And then you see, uh, you think you find life in the scriptures, is what he's telling them, but they have borne witness of me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. He, in doing the divine work, is giving life, and he is exercising judgment. These are the two things he's emphasizing. It's important what we're doing this morning, and what we have done in most of our time here. It's important to be willing to wrestle with the deep things of God when they come to us in his word, to seek after his mysteries in as much as he has spoken to them. But we're ending on this emphasis of these works because I don't want us to lose sight of the claims that our Lord is making here. When we say to ourselves, when we say to others, we come to Jesus Christ to find life, What we find in our text this morning is that we are describing a reality that is as inevitable as the divine nature itself. It could be no other way because of who God is than that we would have to come to Jesus to find life. Our Lord declares in verse 24 of our passage, truly, truly, if you would have eternal life, You must hear my word and trust the one who has sent me. And we live in an age with a a contemporary notion. This is not a notion that is foreign to the rest of history, but it certainly is big in our time, isn't it? The notion of multiple paths to God. That notion finds no sympathy whatsoever from Jesus. He says in no uncertain terms, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And lastly, it's worth mentioning, because we've seen so much this morning about Jesus' divine mission and being sent by his Father, Uh, his being sent in order to do his Father's will. Uh, We need to distinguish between what of that work we are meant to copy as his people and what we are not meant to copy. You understand what I mean in terms of the difference? Most of this morning consisted of things that we do not copy. They speak to the utterly unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And in all of that, our role is not to seek to emulate. Our role is to honor the Son. That's what Jesus himself says here, that the purpose that the Father has in sending the Son and in working through him in these ways is that the Son would receive honor 
as a result. Our obligation in light of this is not to emulate him in that. It's to honor him for who he is and what he has done. But I would say this as well. In the divine mission itself, we would do well this morning not to overlook what Jesus is going to go on to say in this gospel. Because he will suggest to us, he'll make very clear, there are elements of what he is coming and doing that he is commissioning us to go and do. John 17, 18, he says this, As you, he's speaking to his father, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It doesn't mean that we bear the same representative relationship with the Father. We will never represent him in the same way. But we do represent, don't we? We are a people as Christians who need never be confused at the question, why am I here? That is not a point of confusion for the believer in Jesus Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors to a world that draws near to his judgment. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, God is making his appeal through us. What a statement about your purpose in this life, about your place in this life. It doesn't matter when, where, how the Lord has chosen to place you in this world. This is true. Our Lord has commissioned us in this way. Do you think of yourself in those terms? Or is this, is this an idea that the Lord would use this morning to bring back to your mind, to remind you of powerfully? What God has said he is doing through his people to the lost world around us is he is making his appeal through us. May the knowledge of Jesus' kindness and power toward us in this coming. May it compel us in exactly the way that Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. Let me read that to you, and we'll end with this this morning. He wrote this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is our commission and calling, and it is a high one indeed. Would you pray with me?